everybody's turning into zombies all over the place. There's this chaos all over the world, dire circumstances, destruction everywhere. People with unpredictable behaviors are destroying one another and, and who knows what they're going to do next. And kind of the World Health Organization has got to figure out a way, how do, how do, you, how do you address this thing? Well, the, the great priority in the movie is to go back and find out what are the origins of this viral outbreak. And so they assign their top scientific investigator to comb the whole world and go back to the place where this virus first broke out so they could try and understand what happened right here. What's the nature of this thing? Well, that's kind of what the Bible does for us. There has been a viral outbreak that in a way we're going to see today has turned humanity into a bunch of zombies. And how do we deal with that? How do we deal with this condition? Because we lift our eyes up and we look at the world and people are doing horrific things. They're out of control. It's destructive. It's mysterious. Nobody can figure out how to stop this plague. And for us to have any sense of what to do with this thing, we're going to need to go back to the beginning and find out what exactly is it? What exactly happened in the beginning that is informing what we're experiencing today? So last week when we were introduced to the pattern of the kingdom, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, we, we all got educated as to where did we come from? Where did the world setting come from? Where did human relationships come from? Men and women and husbands, wives and children and offspring and all these things that make up our lives. Well, the pattern of the kingdom was revealed, as Peter shared last week, this God created us with a purpose. And the pattern he installed in humanity was that we would be the image bearers of God. So God's personage, his personality, his character, what he's like was going to be expressed through us. We would be his image. You've heard all kinds of illustrations in that category. Like we're these mirrors that are to reflect this life of God into the world. But we're more than that because the reflector thing doesn't really work in some ways because God was to be in us in such a way that we would express his life into the world. That was the pattern that God created. But a problem arose. And the Bible quickly takes us to that problem in Genesis chapter 3. Now listen, as we read this chapter... There's a lot here, and there's just not enough time for us to go through all the details and take it apart. Well, something I'm going to skirt over that I really have a hard time skirting over here is the origins of temptation. Right? If you want to understand why you're tempted to do the things that you're tempted to do, because every one of us is tempted, here's day one of temptation. Here's when temptation made its debut on planet Earth, and here's what's in it, and here's how it feels, and here's what it offers and there's a lot to learn just from temptation, and I'm not going to even touch that. So uh, there's plenty here. But here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that man's existence and his condition is going to change. Whatever we were introduced to in Genesis 1 and 2, man's existence and his condition is going to change. Man's relationships are going to change. By the time we exit Genesis chapter 3... Man's relationships are not what they were in Genesis chapter 2. Man's environment 
changes. The conditions that we exited chapter two in were conditions of harmony. Men and women were getting along together. The environment around them was a good environment, God called it. There was not problems to be solved. Nobody knew what solving problems were in chapter two. And then lastly, God's actions toward man is going to change. God is postured one way in Genesis chapter two. God is postured differently in Genesis chapter three. And if you don't notice these changes, you're gonna be very confused by trying to explain human life today because you're not aware of how did we get here? What's the origins of this zombie virus that's broken out in our midst. Well, Genesis 3 is here for a reason, and we need to carefully learn from it. So let's start reading in verse 1. Genesis 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. But God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. That's a big deal. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And we'll look at that in just a moment. Well, Lord, these elements of the storyline your great redemptive plan are so critical for our lives. Or things happened here in this garden thousands of years ago that touch our lives every day, every moment. Or we wake up living on the other side of Genesis chapter 3. And it's fresh and it's real and it affects us. And so Lord, give us eyes to see and understanding what took place here what, what got broke, and what's the only hope we have to see it fixed? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's a lot introduced to us here, right? We, we were living in paradise there for a moment, 
And, and quite honestly, nobody really knows how long. You know, were they there for a day? Were they there for a thousand years? Nobody really knows how long they were living in paradise conditions until the serpent showed up and then temptation came. And, you know, as Milton said, paradise was lost. We do not live in paradise anymore, right? Everybody knows that. This is, I'm not breaking news to anybody, right? But what a, what a fall has taken place. And we get introduced to some things here in this chapter, right? So here's some interesting origins. So I can, in verse 3, I'm just skirt through this quickly. You shall not eat of the fruit lest you die. All right, so we get to Genesis chapter 3 and something is being introduced to us, something that no one previously knew what it was. No one had experienced death before. This is the debut of death. No one can tell you anything about it. No one can explain it to you. God just said this condition is going to arise if you disobey me. And so we meet something called death. Verse 7, they ate and it says, then... The eyes of both were opened. Now, that doesn't sound like a bad deal, does it? I mean, that, that's part of, a, a part of the temptation was it sounds like we're about to get an upgrade. So apparently, their eyes in some way were a bit shut. Their eyes were limited. They had boundaries. They could see certain things, but they could not see other things. And, you know, hey, I mean, Adam and Eve, there's no evidence that they were Americans, but we don't like boundaries, do we? Don't tell me where I can and can't go. Don't tell me I, I can't have that. That sounds like a better deal. So if, if that'll open my eyes, well, then I will get to see things that I don't currently see. But now looking back on that, right, because you and I are going to get an offer to have something that's going to upgrade us. What if the devil comes to you and says, hey, right now, you're kind of shut down, limited. You got limitations. You can't. What if we could lift those limitations? What if you could? Well, that sounds like a good deal. It's not a good deal, is it? Not in this situation. It's not a good deal. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord, and they hid themselves from God. Now, you and I read this story, and we just kind of, we've gotten used to it, but you understand what a radical, bizarre concept this is? They have, they, they know no reason to hide themselves from God. I mean, do you understand? They've never seen God in a bad mood. They've never seen God just blow up like a volcano unpredictably and zap some tree or fry some animal. It's like God's walking around in the garden in the cool of the day and is he in a good mood today? No, let's hide. They've never seen anything about God that would cause them to hide from him until their eyes got opened. Now it makes sense to hide from him. There's no, there's no debate here. There's no discussion. Adam and Eve don't look at each other and say, what do you mean hide from God? That's a stupid idea. Why would we do that? They hide from God. That's what eyes open does to you. Isn't that interesting? You get to have your eyes open. And next thing you know, you're going to want to hide from God. A lot of interesting stuff gets introduced to us in this chapter. Verse 10, God inquires about their hiding. He said, I was afraid because I was naked. All right, well, um, chapter 2 closed with 
and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There wasn't this awkwardness about their nakedness. There wasn't this self-consciousness. There wasn't this turned in on themselves, confusion about what do we do with this awkward sense. That didn't even exist until their eyes got opened. Now, eyes open, life is confusing to them, right? This stuff, they've never done this before. But now it makes sense to do it this way. See how confusing life has become? And something that no one had ever experienced before is being experienced here. I was afraid. You know, fear is, a, fear is quite a motivator, isn't it? When you think in your life of the things that have turned you upside down, makes your stomach migrate from down here to up here, you know, messes with your week, preoccupies your mind. What is it? It's, it's fear, isn't it? Well, this is fear's debut. No one ever knew fear before this. No human being dreaded anything or found themselves with an unpredictable future that how do I respond to what I don't know might happen? Now, that's part of man's existence. And then look in verse 12. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. This is comical, but I mean, it's it's eye-opening as well, isn't it? Adam's never seen anybody blame somebody else. It's never been modeled for him in his life. He knows how to do it just like that. It's like, what, what is this condition that you don't even have, you don't need lessons in? It's not like you can say, you know, my dad used to always blame my mom. He didn't have a mom and a dad. And he's never watched God blame anybody, but he knows if you do something wrong, blame somebody else. He just knows to do it. So if you've got a problem in that area, it's just, you know, it, we inherited this stuff. You don't have to be taught to do any of this. There's no lessons before any of this. Nobody say, look, you know, when, when God comes around, hide from him. No one taught him to do that. And, and be afraid. What does that mean? Afraid. Never heard of that. Oh, and blame other people. That'll keep the attention off of you. All right, that sounds good. I mean, no one taught him this. But this is their new condition. Whatever they were in Eden, in the, in the paradise of what God originally created, they are no more. They have a new existence here. And it is a confused, disoriented, ashamed, blaming, hiding, and dead condition. This now defines man's existence. And so whatever we graduated from chapter two with, it's not the same world anymore. It's different now. And then Genesis three continues. Verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because, hold on to that word because. Do you see that word because? That word because is a responsive word, isn't it? Something happened, God is responding to something. So notice the language. Because you have done this, cursed are you. Above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, I will do this, and I'm going to put it there. It's not there yet, but I'm putting it there. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then he turns his attention to the woman. God is in one mode here. And he went from the serpent, right? There was a blame-shifting game. Started with Adam, went to the woman. Woman has passed it off to the serpent. God just reversed the process. Said, well, let me start with you, serpent. And God said, here's now your new reality. Now he turns to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Can I just get you to see some things here? Because if you ignore these things, you just are simply ignoring the Bible. But they're not things we want to see. Why is there pain in childbirth? I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because, why? Because, why am I taking this action? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then we end this chapter in verse 24, where God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim on a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the last thing God does is he evicts them out of Eden. Now, there's a word used here. It's used of the actions that God has taken. It's the word cursed. Cursed are you. God said, use that word when he spoke to the serpent. He used that word again when he spoke to Adam. And he said, you are cursed because of what you have done. But this is what this word means. In the Hebrew, in the original language of the Old Testament, it says that word means to inflict with a curse, to bind, to hem in, to render powerless to resist. So these conditions that we discover in Genesis chapter 3 were inflicted upon man. And I think we have to notice that. I think we have to notice it just because God chose to explain it to us that way. You know what's not here? This is not like, you know, there's these natural consequences. You know, if you jump out of a tall building, there's this thing called gravity. It's going to pull you to the ground and slam you down. Adam, you chose to jump and gravity chose to slam you. That's not what's here, is it? This is an infliction. This is God saying, because you did this, I'm going to do this now. Now, you, you just learned something about God, and then you may not like what you just learned about God, but it's there. And I'm irresponsible if I stand in front of you and, and, and I don't notice that. And God put it there so that I would notice it. Things have changed, and God is now postured toward man differently than he was in chapter 2. 
Von Robert says, the harmony between human beings and the created order is ended. From now on, it will be a struggle to control it. The natural world is to be experienced not just as a friend, but as an enemy. And then in verse 24, he drives man out of the garden. So in this new fallen world, right? So we have a, we have a new order of existence. There is enmity and strife and hostility and uncooperativeness and disharmony, right? This is, this is the theological reason as to why Roundup exists. Y'all know what Roundup is? And this is the theology of Roundup. This is why weeds grow in your garden. Because there is disharmony between creation and humanity now. And you and I try to do the things that originally we were supposed to be doing, right? God had given Adam and Eve a role to play in governing the earth. But now the earth is going to resist you. You're going to try and govern it, and it's going to say, no, thank you. And the spiritual beings, where there would have been harmony, now they are opposed to you, and they're coming after you, and you are their enemies. And so there are spiritual forces in this world that are against us. That's the condition we live in. So our environment is against us. The spiritual forces are against us. And guess what? We are against us. And you saw that instantly, didn't you? The second sin came into the world. Adam didn't humbly lower his head and saying, I am responsible. I did this. I made the decision to do this. No, he... It's her. You know, I don't know. I don't know. That doesn't bode well for relationships. I don't know how you guys feel about being blamed for things. It doesn't bode well for relationships. We're in conflict with each other now. And look at the actions that are being taken here. This is not God saying, hey, today's Monday and tomorrow is going to even be better than today, guys. Oh, I know you messed up, but don't worry about that. And then Tuesday is going to be even greater. And I've got all these wonderful plans for us coming up. All of a sudden, God is postured differently towards humanity. Now, listen, I, I know this is where this chapter is so important because you cannot afford to overlook what's happening here. Otherwise, you create this God who's not in the Bible because none of us want a God who's against us, do we? And most people, quite honestly, have never paid attention to this chapter. They've defined God, but they've never got their definition from here. So they've got, well, there was a God who created everything, and God is our Father, and God is for us. And that's it. That's their storyline. Do you see that storyline here? This God is postured differently toward humanity. Juan Roberts, in his book again, which I hope you're keeping up with the reading, he says, the perfect creation that God had established is now nothing but a distant dream. The pattern of the kingdom has been destroyed by sin. Human beings are no longer God's people by nature. Listen to this. We have turned away from him. We no longer live in his place. We have been banished from the garden and we reject his rule and live as if we ruled the world. As a result... We do not enjoy God's blessing, but instead face his curse. That's an accurate summation of what's happened in Genesis chapter 3. 
Things are not as they once were. And these changes are what you and I need to figure out. How do we fix this? Well, this answers the question of what's your problem anyway? Have you ever had somebody ask you that? They usually don't ask it to you real nicely, do they? And you don't ask people that. It's because they're doing something that just doesn't look like it's the right thing that you go, what's your problem? Well, here's our problem. And if you answer the what's your problem wrong, then you will try and fix it wrong. You will fix symptoms. You will fix things on the outskirts of the problem, but you'll never touch the real problem. And so I, I want to introduce us to two major problems that I don't introduce you to. It's in Genesis chapter three. So I, I want to distance myself from the book for a second here because I'm going to point you to two things here that you may not like being pointed to. And don't make the mistake of thinking this is, this is Keith's idea here. These are two things that are in Genesis chapter three. Now we've got all kinds of problems that come from here. Right? Husbands and wives are going to have a hard time getting along now. There's going to be issues. There's going to be childbirth. There's going to be pain problems. There's going to be economic problems. There's going to be the earth won't yield its fruit. Uh, there's going to be famines and stress. and the, All those problems exist. But the two major problems that are in Genesis chapter 3 is something called death and something called judgment. And we were introduced to both of them here. So let's look at death first, Right? And the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Unexperienced, unexplained, just told as a fact. What exactly is this death that's being referred to here? Because we learn something about it by what doesn't happen the moment they eat of the fruit. There is no immediate physical outward collapse. Breath continues to breathe, blood keeps flowing, a heart keeps beating. But by the way, it's on its way to death, right? So there's going to be a death that takes this physical existence and changes it. But the day that they ate, something else changed. There was a death that took place inside of them. The life that God had given to them that was his own presence and life has now been separated from them. They have lost spiritual life at some level. Now, there's still a soulish dimension to them, so it's not as though there's nothing there. But their vitality with God, that aspect of the image of God in them, so that when they look out at the world, God interprets it for them. The image of God gives them the knowledge to do relationships and to do life. That's died. That's not in them anymore. So when they go to do relationships now and they look inside, the God image is not there. How do they figure out how to do this now? Well, now they do it in this, my own eyes are open. But that's not a good thing. We've already seen that, right? Their own eyes lead them into confusion and fear and brokenness. But that's all they've got. That's the new life that's on the scene here. It's this death that brings upon man, his disorientation, his confusion, his distorted and destructive approach to life, right? A situation is going to come to every one of us. It comes to them. And they greet that situation without 
God's divine life to steer and direct and give them desires and impulses toward it. Now they have their own corrupted desires. And the Bible wastes no time in letting us see what that looks like, right? Genesis chapter 4. Everybody knows the story of Cain and Abel. Look in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Right? You understand what's happening here. The guy's just doing life. And he's made some decisions and life has responded. God has responded. And he has left. How do you feel about that, Cain? Well, he doesn't feel good about it. He feels confused by it. He feels disoriented by it. And in his confusion and his disorientation, a set of emotions are coming with that. And some thinking is going on. His wheels are turning. And he's not liking what he's coming up with because he's corrupted. He's left to himself. And the way this plays out for him is a horrible future story and his countenance falls and he becomes angry. His hope for the future has been stolen from him. Somebody took this from me. And he's responding like any of us respond. If you do well, verse 7, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Why on earth would Cain take the life of his brother? He's never seen that done before. It made sense to him to do it. Why would it make sense to him to do it? Because the presence of God that would have told him that doesn't make any sense to do that. He is gone. And now he is left with the knowledge of good and evil that he uses in his own ability. And suddenly, rather than being an image bearer of God, it's all about him. It's all about his existence. It's all about protecting his interest and his territory. And that guy right there, my brother, is a threat to my existence. And it makes sense to me to remove threats. And he kills him. But do you, can, you, can you go with me here? It makes sense to him to kill him. That seems like the right thing to do. Kill him. Now, if I'm an image bearer of God, if the way I treat other people demonstrates what God's character is like, this makes no sense. But I've lost that. Cain doesn't have that anymore. So what he did made perfect sense for him to do. It felt right. And then the Bible just sweeps us into the rest of the story. Right? In chapter 5, you get a lot of uh, genealogy elements of who descended from who. And then we pick right back up in chapter 6. And we're right back into a problem. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Right? This is the new condition. This is man without the life and presence of God inside of him. He just looks and he looks to protect his own interests constantly and it becomes corruption after corruption after corruption. And now the whole earth is filled with a bunch of people who are doing their own thing. Oh, now listen, does that mean none of them got along with each other? Oh, no, of course they got along with each other. As long as you're interested in my interests, we get along. 
So there's tribal elements there. There's coming together. There's unity. There's a sense of, hey, we'll work this out between us because you're interested in protecting my territory and I am too. And that makes sense to me. I'm not here to image God. I'm here to figure out what's best for me. And that wickedness spreads throughout the earth. And we get the story of Noah out of that setting. Genesis 11, right? We fast forward, we go through experience of the flood and we get introduced to something called the Tower of Babel. Verse four, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Do you hear the ourselves in this? This is not a people who are interested in imaging God any longer. This is a people who have their own interests driving them. And so they're going to now do chapter two of eating from the tree. Hey, you know what, God? We got this good and evil thing. We don't need you. We'll just eat of the tree. Hey, you know what, God? We don't need you. We'll build a tower into the heavens. And whatever it is you got going on up there, we'll access that ourselves. This is the corruption that sits in the human heart. You fast forward all the way to Genesis 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah are corrupted cities. What does this all illustrate for us? Well, it illustrates what's inside of man. It illustrates the condition of man. Not just then, but now. If you evacuate the life of God from humanity... You don't end up with something that is, quote, good. You end up with something that's corrupt and self-serving, even if it is nice when it's corruptly self-serving. And you, you do understand, as I'm, and I'm, I don't know who to pick on besides Oprah. She's just easy. But, um, but you know, I, I, Oprah comes off as nice, and she's got nice people on her program trying to do nice things. But you do recognize there's a theology when you watch the show. It's the basic premise that people are good. If you just give them a chance to be good, if you just empower them to be good, if you just educate them to be good, if you just give some money to this foundation who's really doing a good thing to help people become good. And that, you know, we listen to that over and over and over again, and you and I start feeling like, well, you know, for the most part, I... I don't know. I mean, there's some bad people out there, but for the most part, people are pretty good. Oh, really? Did, did you get that from reading chapter 3 and the rest of Genesis? People are void of the life of God that was intended to give us an impulsive desire and craving to image God into this world. So there's something else motivating us. That's what death is. This is the condition of death that sits inside all of us. So if man's condition, if man's problem is that he's dead, then what's his solution to his problem? If what was lost in paradise was life, well, therefore, the great project of fixing man has to answer the question, how does man get life? If that's what's broken in man, now if I go back to Genesis, that is what's broken. I mean, do you agree with me on that? I'm reading Genesis chapter 3, and I'm seeing 
Man has entered into a condition called death. He is dead. How do you fix something that's dead? You got to give it life. It lost life. It now needs to receive life. What's the fix for humanity? The receiving of life. Well, at what point did man start thinking he could just self-improve and fix himself? When did that become a solution for humanity? Regardless of whether I have life or don't have life, I just need to sum up my wisdom, sum up, get educated, and, and be devoted to improving my condition. That's what I need to do. Where did that idea come from? Well, it's always been around. In the Tower of Babel, that's exactly what they were doing. They weren't looking to God. They weren't standing in life and saying, you know what our problem is? We are, we are void of life. We need life. We need God's life. That's what we need. They weren't standing and saying that. They were just trying to figure out what can we do to fix us? Well, I know what we can do. Let's all come together. That's a start. And then let's educate one another because I know most of y'all don't know how to do bricks, but we're going to teach you how to do bricks. So we got, we got a school system. We got education going on. And we're going to educate you on and when, we're, when we all get educated, we're going to all improve ourselves. And then we're going to meet our needs. That doesn't sound like it's going to fix man's problem. It might make for some nice buildings and architecture, but it's not going to fix man's problem. Self-improvement. Listen, self-improvement is in the heart of man, not the pursuit of life. And, you know, this is true for when Jesus shows up in the New Testament. Look at John chapter 3. We've got a Bible you can look there. I think we've got a passage up on the screen here. Jesus shows up and interacts with a religious man named Nicodemus. He's not building a tower to heaven, but it's all about self-improvement. It's all about your activities as a human being to do religious things that will improve your life. John 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That's, that's a loaded phrase right there. So he was not just a Jewish person who was a religious group of people. He was a Pharisee who was an extremely devoted religious individual. So this is a guy who's not slack about his efforts of human improvements. He takes this seriously. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? That's our storyline. That's what we're following, right? This kingdom, pattern of the kingdom, parish kingdom. This is the language of the Bible. Jesus says, Nicodemus, your only hope to ever seeing the kingdom of God is that you're going to have to be born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus wants to figure out what do we do to fix us? What do we do to improve our lives? Jesus radically answers the question, almost ignoring his question in some ways, and says, 
Nicodemus is not about self-improvement. You don't have life, man. Your only hope, and anybody's only hope for entering the kingdom is you're going to have to receive life. You're going to have to be born again. There was this death that took place. I don't know if you've read about it. It happened in Genesis chapter 3. You're going to have to be born again because you, you, your, your race went through a death that now it needs life. The answer is life. It's, it's not activity. It's, it's not improvement. You can't behave your way into the kingdom of God. You have to receive life to come into the kingdom of God. So is the solution that you are seeking, is it life given by God or is it some form of self-improvement? Because Jesus goes on, right? John chapter 3 gives us the most famous passage that most everybody has memorized, right? You move on from Nicodemus' story to shortly thereafter you move to John 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he, he did something here. He gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. All right, so now you just learn, so how do you get life? Well, the only way to get life is for God to have sent his son to give it to us. Jesus needed to be somebody and he needed to accomplish something in order for us to have life. So is my fix found in Jesus Christ, the Savior who gives life? Or is my fix found in hard work, dedication, religion, and self-improvement? And quite honestly, if you walk over to the religion shelf of this world and look at every religion, every religion except for Judaism and Christianity, every one of them points you to human improvement. Every one of them. So how does one fix broken humanity in Islam? Islam's not looking for a savior. As a matter of fact, the idea that Jesus might be a savior is clearly rejected, hostily rejected by Islam, called ridiculous by Islam. And it doesn't turn around and say, look, now don't get me wrong. I know we need a savior and I know God's going to have to do something that we can't do for ourselves, but it ain't Jesus. That's not what Islam teaches. Islam teaches that Jesus is not who the Christians claim he is and the Bible claims he is. He's not that. Uh, and this is how you fix you. You do this and then you do that. You do this and you do that. There's no savior in Islam. There's just human improvement in Islam. There's no savior in Hinduism. There's just human improvement you just do some things that will improve your status so that when you die and you come back to this world as a reincarnated being, you get an upgrade instead of a downgrade. And all of that is based on how good you did. So you try and you get better. And you try and you get better. You try and you get better. It's, it's human improvement. There's no life being given in that. It's just human improvement. And there's no savior needed. Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't teach a savior. Buddhism teaches self-improvement. Buddhism teaches you how to, to think differently. So it wants to educate you, wants to give you a new set of information, and then it wants to make you use that information so you can transcend the world and separate yourself from it so that the, all the brokenness in this world doesn't pull you down so much and you overcome it. 
There's no savior in Buddhism. As a matter of fact, there's not even a personal God in Buddhism. There's simply human power to fix itself. Listen, you know, all Buddhism is is an Eastern form of humanism. It's, it's Eastern, so it's dressed up in meditation. It wears robes and plays with incense and stuff like that. But it's humanism. You know, all humanism is is we got this, we can fix ourselves. And so, you know, trying to be careful about not smashing something that, I'm not trying to say the wrong thing here, but when, you know, I heard this wonderful thing, wonderful thing, Bill and Melinda Gates have this incredible foundation uh, out there that, you know, with the guy with the most money in the world is, is now he's trying to figure out how to give it away, which is commendable, uh, glad he's doing that. But he, he, he loves education, and he sees it as a means of empowering people for their life to improve, for them to be rescued out of poverty and, and suffering and difficulty. And, and you and I know that, that to some degree that, that will help that. And that's not wrong. And, and I, I wouldn't say, hey, dude, stop doing that. Uh, you know, thanks for the help. That's, that's fine. But you understand that doesn't fix those people. It's, it's an expression of humanism. It's an expression of I don't need to look to a God to give life to me that's been lost. We just need to try harder. We just need to educate people. We just need to equip them, and then they'll fix themselves. That's humanism. We need a savior to fix us. And we need life. That's what's missing in our lives. And so when you come to religion, religion is going to either point you towards self-improvement or a savior. And be careful where you go with that. But let me show you one more thing here that is in this chapter. And I'll do this really quickly. Death is not man's only problem. He died. But what came after that death is also a problem. It is God's acts of judgment because, remember that word? Because of what man has done. God responds to Adam and Eve in the garden with judgment. It's like they were told to live a certain way. They rejected that and took their own course. And then another set of actions suddenly came into their world. And those set of actions were the judgment of God. God judged what they did and inflicted upon them a different future than the one that they had before. That's where that came from. And quite honestly, it's the pattern of God revealed in this section of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, Cain, we just read about Cain and what he did. Look at verse 9. After Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. In verse 9 it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed. Well, he was cursed already, wasn't he? Wouldn't we just get into Genesis chapter 3? Wasn't he just, just generally cursed? I want, you, I want you to notice something because God did this. Everybody was under a curse in Genesis 3, but now specifically Cain because of what you've done. So God doesn't just generally bring judgment. God specifically and individually brings judgment. 
You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from, the, from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. That was the judgment of God. When man's self-will and sinful corruption rises to the place that God says all of man's thoughts was wickedness and evil all the time in Genesis chapter 6. How does God respond to that? Well, he responds in a way that he never had responded before. So all of humanity was under some judgment, but now specifically that judgment is going to be a giant flood that God inflicts upon the earth and destroys all of humanity except for Noah's family. When man decides he'll build a tower to heaven, God steps in and does something that's never been done before. Conditions that never existed five minutes earlier suddenly exist. A language barrier was inflicted upon man, and now languages are confused and man is spread throughout the earth. God did that. Sodom and Gomorrah. The activity, because of what they've done, do you understand? God didn't reign brimstone fire down from heaven on every city in the world but he did on them specifically God responded to them in judgment listen man has another problem besides he's dead there's a God who responds to man's independent selfish expressions as a judge you do see that don't you I'm not making this up I'm not, listen, I don't like this, okay? I don't. I would love to have some version of God that says, hey, God didn't even notice he did that. Look at God like a good grandfather, just overlooking that again. Oh, he is, isn't God awesome? Listen, if, my, if I got an, a parent or a grandparent who yelled at me, I didn't like that. I, I like, you know, bring me to the store again and get me another piece of candy. I like that a whole lot better. But if I didn't point this out to you, I'd be lying to you, wouldn't I? Because this is in the Bible. Man's got a couple of problems here. One of them is he's in a condition called death. The other one is God is judging him. And that's not just, well, God, you know, he was in a bad mood. Come on, Keith, it's Genesis. He kind of lightens up later. Really? <laughs> this is why we're reading the storyline going on throughout, throughout the whole Bible. Because you're going to see God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I come into the New Testament and I find Jesus, you know, nice hippie Jesus. In Matthew 12, telling people, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What? Do you, are you aware of that? That there is like an accumulating of words taking place and actions and attitudes that there's like a, an accounting system in heaven that every word that comes out of your mouth, every lustful thought in your heart that never got noticed by another human being, but Jesus said it's just as real as if you'd acted on it. It's in you. It doesn't image God. It falls short of his glory. Every one of those acts is being accounted for. And there's this thing called the day of judgment. That whole audience should have screeched and gone, whoa, 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 whoa. time out. Wait, 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 don't, 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 don't go on. What did you say? A day of judgment? Wait, can, what does that look like? Well, it, it looks like someday, Acts chapter 17, Paul says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. This is not Old Testament God in a bad mood. This is Jesus telling us about that, and this is the the apostle of the New Testament who writes most of the scripture to us, telling us that there still is this calendar day that's coming, and everybody in this room is going to go to that day. And on that day, if you didn't have your death problem solved, you're going to have a judgment problem on your hands. And Do you think God would want you to know this? I think the fact that God wrote down his actions and specifically took responsibility for them and said, the reason why this is what happened after the Garden of Eden, because I did that. The reason why this happened to Cain after he sinned, because I did that. The reason why Sodom and Gomorrah, because I did that. I just want to make sure you got an accurate picture of me so that when you stand before me one day, you don't go, I had no idea you were a judge. Did Did you read the book I gave you? I put it all over the place. Let me tell you what some of this means for us today. Implications of Genesis chapter 3. First, there are three categories needed for understanding our existence in God's character. Three categories. I'm not going to develop, I'm just going to reference them. Three categories that are needed for understanding our existence right now and God's character. They're this, the way things were, the way things are, and the way things will be. The way things were, as in what God originally created, in the original created order, in the Garden of Eden before sin showed up. The way things are, the world as we know it, its corrupted state, its death, its confusion, it's misrepresentation of the image of God. And the way things will be, which will more look like the original creation than what we have. That's pretty important stuff for interpreting life today and drawing conclusions about what God is like. Right? Second implication, this is related to that one. Did God, quote, make you this way? How many of you guys have heard that phrase in the last dozen years in a way that you didn't really hear it a whole lot before? Why would God make me this way? Now, whatever this way means for you, why would God make me this way? There was a song out by one of the popular artists, Born This Way. You guys heard of this song? You know, one person, honest, the rest of y'all. So that song said something, didn't it? It implied that there is a condition in my life that if I have certain impulses and desires in me, well, why would God not want me to act on them? If he gave them to me, why would he not want me to act on them? I was born this way, you see. Well, who's responsible for that? Well, God is. Okay, this is a person who's not reading Genesis chapter 3. This is a person who doesn't have three categories in mind. The way things were, the way things are, and the way things will be. Right? Now, I, I recognize God's the landlord who owns everything on the planet, and he sovereignly rules over it all. But the way things are is not the way God created them. He made them in his image. They were supposed to do something different than what they're doing. 
And the fact that one day God is going to unmake this and make it something else tells you what he thinks about this. He doesn't run around thinking that, you know what, uh, I'm kind of okay with the way y'all are. And if you weren't sure of that, we don't get past Genesis 3 until we get into Genesis 4, and God models that with Cain. Now, how many guys understand this? And you're going to laugh when I say it, but, but it's just a fact. Cain was born that way. You understand? Cain could have said, wait, God, why are you all flipped out over what I did? If you didn't want me to act on these desires, why did you give them to me? Cain had desires. Cain did life. Something rose up from within him. In the absence of God's life, something else rose up within him. A sense of competition. A sense of self-definition. A sense of, of what would it mean for me to find fulfillment in life. And when that got threatened, something else rose up in him like fear and ambition. And he wanted to make sure to provide for himself. He had an impulse and he acted on it and it felt like the right thing to do. Because he was deceived. And then God makes it pretty clear right away. How does God feel about people just acting on the impulses that are within them? He's not okay with it. He judged Cain because of what he did. Now listen, you and I live in the lineage of Cain. And your story may not be Cain's story, but there is some way that you interact with life and it feels a certain way to you because you were born that way and you process life and you engage life and suddenly you get in touch with an impulse that's inside of you and you want to act on it and you have a desire to act on it. And you might even be listening to that song singing, I was born this way, and you're asking God, well, God, why would you give me these desires if you didn't want me to act on them? Go back and read Genesis chapter 3. God did not give you those desires. Sin gave you those desires. Corruption gave you those desires. The brokenness of this world gave you those desires. And if God, for a moment, thought they were okay, he wouldn't reinvent the world. He'd just say, hey, this one's good enough. This one works for me. The fact that what God started with and what he will end with look the same in many ways informs you about what he feels about what's in the middle of this, doesn't he? Okay, this is a reality for every one of us. It's a confusing world that we live in, but can I, I don't know if I'm coining this phrase, but I'm going to take ownership of it. Every one of us has what I'm going to call impulse management disorder. Every one of us. In the absence of the, the impulsion of God's life inside of us, we now all have impulse management disorder. For some of us, that'll mean aggression, anger, control, cane-like behavior. For others, it'll be overlaid back, lazy, captivated by whatever's not trouble. That's my impulse. My impulse is... Don't be noticed. Do as little as possible. Don't create trouble. That's my impulse. All right, well, you act on your impulse. For some people, it's sexual impulses. All right, so the debate of whether or not there should be same-sex attraction or heterosexual attraction, do you do recognize both have impulses inside of us? So it's not as though the only people experiencing internal impulses are people with same-sex attraction. No, long before that became a discussion point, 
People with heterosexual attraction have been having impulses to do something inappropriate that did not image God. And they wanted to express themselves emotionally, physically, sexually outside of a covenant of marriage with one person for the rest of their life. They had that impulse. I was born that way. You do follow me. You were born that way. And yet God's not okay with it. And that's clear in how he responds. So here's the two issues. Kurt, you can come back up. Here's our two issues to respond to. What's, what's my problem? Well, I've got a life problem. If I don't have the life of God in me, I am what the Bible calls dead. And that condition of death disorients me and it confuses me and it makes me ashamed and it gives me fears and it makes me aggressive. It makes me hurt. It makes me blame. This is the new condition that humanity finds itself in. And the only thing that will fix that is life. But I don't just have a death and life problem. I have a judgment problem. God has responded to corrupt human expression with judgment. He judges the sinfulness of man. So I not only need life, but I need somehow to escape the judgment of God. And here is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ comes to give us both. He comes the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son so that he could give us the life that we need. He didn't just come as a life broker. Jesus didn't set up shop in downtown Jerusalem and open a store saying, hey, I got life. You want life? Come to me, I'll give you life. The most significant thing Jesus did in his life upon this earth was to go to a cross and die. What was he doing there? Giving us life? He was taking our judgment on himself. So when we fast forward from Genesis 3 all the way into the New Testament, the same storyline is occurring. What man lost and what man faced in Genesis chapter 3 is still being addressed today in the New Testament. The desperate need of every one of us is the need for life. I need God's life to return to me. And I need to be spared of his judgment. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can handle both of those issues. So I don't know, I don't know how you've been approaching your life. I don't know how you've necessarily been approaching religion. It's amazing how much we pull self-improvement into this conversation. What, what, what's going to fix you? You, personally, it's going to fix you. I guess it depends on what you think your problem is. All those sub-problems, all that misbehavior, all that hurting each other, all that nobody wants to be around me, I can't keep a job, all that stuff is because of a loss of life. Because I'm dead, and that's what life looks like when you're dead. I need life. Listen, this is the whole message God was trying to give in this book. It's what we're trying to accomplish this summer. This is not a, a book about advice and how to plant crops and get along with people. This, this is a book about how to get life and how to escape the judgment of a God who will judge everyone, either judging us in Christ or judging us when we stand before him.
That's my problem. And it's yours too. Let's stand up together. So we believe that when we gather, God uniquely gathers with us. And his spirit moves among us to communicate things to us, to impart things to us, to stir us on the inside. So can you be sensitive to that for a moment? Maybe God wants to communicate something to you on the inside in a special way. He wants to speak your name, identify where you are. So I'm going to just pray for us for a moment and just... God, communicate with you for a moment. Lord, most of us come in here this morning and we are aware, profoundly aware and affected by the symptoms of our problem more than we are our problem. We came in here troubled this morning because some relationship's not working. Somebody blamed somebody Somebody refused to adjust. Somebody's walking away from someone. Or maybe we're just troubled because like Cain, there's a jealousy inside of us that things aren't going our way. We're afraid of the future. God, these things sit in us. They're like these horrible weights that drive us day after day. And we came in here this morning hoping somehow, Lord, you'd, fix the fear. God, that fear is there because we've misplaced your life. We're functioning in the confusion of a life that doesn't have you in it. We, we got our own tree that we're eating from. We've got our own self-improvement project going on. God, we're, we're trying to fix our own world and it's a, it's a scary thing. It's not working and we're at odds with one another over it. But God, the problem that we have is we need your life. We need what Adam and Eve lost. It needs to return to us. So if you're here this morning, what you're aware of in your own heart is that sense of disconnection. I just, I just feel disconnected from God. I, I believe that he's out there, so I just don't sense his life in my life. And I'm not sure what you've done in your own religious pursuits. But what the Bible calls us to do is it calls us to repent of our sin. Each one of us are doing life our own way. God calls on us, repent of that. Stop it. That's my life that I gave to you so that my image could be born in it. Quit misusing it and we keep doing it. So to turn to God means to admit that. God, I'm I'm selfishly using the life you've given me. And the Bible calls on us to look to Jesus Christ, to look to him. The one who was going to come was talked about in Genesis 3, and we know the one who has come. Jesus Christ came so that we could receive life and we could be released from judgment. He who believes, John says, is no longer condemned. If this morning you, 
you'd like to be reunited with God. You'd like God to come in and dwell in your life with his life and his presence. Then you need to turn to him in repentance and turn to Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. You can do that right now. You can have a conversation with God right here, right now. Tell God, I'm sorry for doing this my own way. God, I recognize my need, my need of you and your life. I open my heart to you today. By faith, Jesus, would you give me the life you said you came to give us? Give it to me. And Jesus, I trust that you have gone to the cross to take my judgment for me. I know I've done things wrong, like Cain or the generation in Noah. I've done my own things wrong. But Jesus, I trust that you went to the cross for my wrongs. You took my judgment and you took my place so that I could be spared of judgment. Jesus, I'm looking to you this morning to release me from judgment by taking it and to give me life. You are my savior. I cannot fix myself. I look to you, fix me. Come, come in my life. And from this day forward, Lord, let me discover that pattern that you meant that idea that you had that we would be the image bearers of who you are. God, from now on, that's what I want to be about. I want my life to be about that. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Men of sorrows, Lamb of God,